Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. All right, let's find out what's real when it comes to markets. Ben Hunt is chief investment strategist for Salient. They are based in uh, Houston, and uh, he is also uh, one of the bloggers for a uh, website. It's called the Epsilon Theory, and you can follow them also on Twitter at Epsilon Theory. Uh, ben Hunt, maybe just tell people why is it called Epsilon Theory? <laughs> That's a great question, Tim. It's great to be here, by the way. Thanks, you and Lisa, for having me. So it, it's called epsilon theory after the standard formula that you learn about, well, what goes into a portfolio, right? We talk about a portfolio and its returns being a combination of alpha. Everybody knows what alpha is, right? That's that special sauce that you bring to to get better Actually, than market Actually, no returns. one really knows what <laughs> that, it is, yeah, to be honest, but, but carry on. But it sounds <laughs> very good People in marketing know what the literature. Idea is, yes, correct. The execution is a unicorn. That's, that's, that's well put, Lisa. And also everyone knows what beta is, which is, okay, I want to get the market. I want to get the returns that the, that the world or the market gives to you. But if you, if you look at that equation, right, and it's always set up as an equation, right, in your textbooks and the like, which is a whole other thing, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the equation is actually alpha plus beta plus this E term out right. there, E for epsilon, which is E for error, Right. That, that in all of econometrics, you've always got that error term that's sitting out there. And the point about epsilon theory is that, well, actually, let's unpack that error term a bit, because it's not just all randomness and, and um, what they call stochastic error in statistics. That's where market behavior lives. That's, that's where game theory lives, that's where history lives, that's where market behavior lives. And there are patterns to that. It's not just random. There are patterns, there's a way to get real market information out of that. Right. So that's what I'm trying to explore. All right, so that's a great place to start with understanding uh, market behavior yes. over the past few weeks. A lot of people say that it was the market behavior of computers and that they took over everything and created a big mess, and then humans were left to try to Those understand. darn machines. Those darn machines. Why were they, why were they so uh, complicated? Uh, and other people were saying, well, people were just nervous, and uh, stocks are a good buy. And then we had a ton of investment managers come on, and we would ask them, are, so are you buying? And they said, well, not yet. Not, not yet. yet. So, yeah. so what, what was going on? Even though on? the fundamentals are sound. Correct. Right? Correct. Yeah. That the was The fundamentals <laughs> are sound. Are you buying? Eh, not so much. Exactly. Every single one. So what's going on here? Well, I'll say this first. A couple of points to you. First, it ain't the machines. Right? It, it, it really isn't. And I, and I say that uh, from a perspective of... Well, at, at Salient, we manage about $13 billion, right? So, you know, not a huge fish, but we know what we're doing, and we've got a, a wide range of strategies. A chunk of those strategies are these systematic strategies, including the boogeyman du jour, risk parity, right? So we've been in this How for a long could time. could you? I know, I know, right? right? And, and what, what I think is important to tell everyone about risk parity, I'll, I'll use that as the example here, these strategies are barges. They're not speedboats. Right? And they and they react. They they do react, and they react to volatility, but it's historical volatility they look at, 
And, and so I will tell you from our strategy, and like I say, we're not one of the giants here like an AQR or, or a Bridgewater, but the bones of all of these strategies are very similar. So I, I know what we're doing. I'm highly confident that I've got a, a strong sense of what those other risk parity strategies are doing. We're not selling on a, on a Monday when the market's declining. We don't even take the VIX, which is what most people think of when they think of volatility. That's a forward-looking thing. We don't even use that. We don't even use that. The, these strategies are barges, and that ain't it. So the question is, what is what it? What is it? What, yeah. is it? what is it? What is it? I'll tell you what I think. What I, what I think it is, because this is what we're wrestling with with our own uh, strategies and, and asset management. In my conversations, I think this is what everyone is wrestling with. How, how do you invest in a world where inflation isn't going down, but is starting to go up? How do you invest? Are our portfolios offsides for a world where inflation is increasing, not decreasing? That's a big change. Look, you'd have to go back 30 years to really be in, in an inflationary environment. And even if you were investing 30 years ago, and I certainly wasn't, I don't know many people who were, even if you were, those muscles, they've atrophied a lot. So, so I, I, I believe so strongly that every asset owner in the world is wrestling with these questions. And when you get an event like that kind of hot wage number we had on Friday, February the 2nd, those wheels start turning. You start thinking, oh, well, am I off sides? Is my portfolio right here? And when you've got a market that has very low, I'll call it volume to it, that, that, that has really quite thin liquidity to it, it doesn't take a lot of people changing their minds about where their portfolio sits to have an outsized impact in the market. All right, I'm going to make you dig a little deeper. Good. What is coyote math? <laughs> All right, that's something I've written about recently, and it's. It, I like to use these kind of examples. From yeah, you know, I'm, I'm this dilettante farmer out in the wilds of Connecticut, right? So, we have coyotes out there. And you are. You don't I, look it. I, well, I am. I am. And and the, the, I admire the coyotes, right? Because they're smart. They're clever. They're, they're much smarter than my dogs, for example. My, my, my dogs don't even know they exist, right? But they're too clever by half. They're too clever by half. And what I mean by that is the same thing with Wiley Coyote from the Looney Tunes, always scheming and planning. And, and that's the case with, with real-world coyotes. But it's also true for the coyotes in our business. Because this business of financial advice and financial management attracts people who are, frankly, too clever by half. All right. So real quick, 30 seconds. What has been been your biggest allocation shift, concept shift that you think investors should know based on the signs of uh, nascent inflation? So what you have to distinguish between is inflation going up and interest rates going up. They're two different things. They follow each other, but that connection between inflation going up and interest rates going up is the thing that everyone needs to be focused on. And this is why, Lisa, to your question, people say, oh, the fundamentals are sound, but I'm not investing. It's because the fundamentals have not been a sufficient condition to invest for eight or nine years now. What you have to have is some notion of, okay, I like the fundamentals, but what are the central banks going to do? 
what are they going to do about interest rates? Right. So we can talk about inflation going up, but it's thinking about interest rates as well. Ben Hunt, a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll let you go back to your coyotes. Ben Hunt, Chief Investment Strategist at Salient, which is based in Houston, Texas, and uh, overseeing about $13 billion of assets. been so much focus in the past few weeks on Russian interference in U.S. elections and uh, their encroachments in the cyber world of the U.S., but there are many other state-sponsored actors out there uh, trying to infiltrate uh, the uh, technological ecosystem of the U.S., and here to talk about that is John Hultquist, Director of Intelligence Analysis for FireEye, based in Washington, D.C. He joins us now. John, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with North Korea. FireEye has identified them as behind a very sophisticated state-sponsored cyber attacker. Can you give us a sense of what that effort looks like and what they would or have or will target in the U.S.? So we recently released a report on a group that we call APT37. They're a North Korean hacking group that's been uh, primarily focused on South Korea carrying out espionage, sort of a classic mission for quite a long time. But we've seen them uh, since actually uh, start developing missions outside of South Korea. They've shown up in Japan, Vietnam, and the Middle East. Uh, and our concern is that this is another tool that could be used by the North Korean regime to project power. Um, they, a lot of the activities Activity that we hear about North Korean hacking activity has actually been attributed to another group. Uh, this team has been able to remain relatively obscure, which makes them an ideal choice for uh, attack operations or even crime because they're not as well known. What have they attacked so far that you've been able to trace? So but most of their operations now appear to be uh, focused on sort of classic intelligence operations or classic intelligence collections. So uh, uh, things like defectors or sanctions or unification efforts. Uh, even the Olympics have been have, – have, they've targeted individuals associated with the Olympics. Um, so they're right now doing a lot of the low and quiet activity, which is precisely the type of activity we see most nascent – uh, capabilities first focus on. For instance, the uh, other hacking groups that have been that are out of North Korea that are very well known uh, first appeared to us as espionage operations, mostly focused in South Korea. So, John, I, I know perhaps it's premature to talk about whether North Korea will be able to infiltrate uh, the U.S. Uh, cyber ecosystem, but I'm wondering, from your perspective. What areas uh, are the most vulnerable in the U.S., and uh, do any of these sort of uh, state-sponsored actors work together? Do they, uh, you know, do you have a sense of how many there are trying to infiltrate uh, a system at any given time? So uh, it, as far as working together, we're always concerned that uh, lessons are being passed between some of these countries that have longs like Russia 
uh, uh, Iran and North Korea. They have longstanding relationships in military and, and move mil- military armaments and, and uh, the training between them. Uh, we haven't necessarily seen that play out from our visibility. Um, our biggest concern is that they're actually learning from each other, though, as far as their offensive actions go. So each time one of these actors carries out uh, a major attack, a disruptive attack, or um, more of an influence type of attack that we saw during the elections, they're each, each one of them is sort of pushing the edge for the other and pushing the norms and the red lines that the other, other actor feels now more comfortable operating within. So uh, in, that, in that regard, they are sort of learning from each other. Would you uh, would you say that all uh, heads of uh, information technology or even the boards of major corporations need to ask themselves, are you happy? And I use that term because that's what you <laughs> describe something. Tell people about are you happy and why they need to be particularly wary. So one of the, one of the concerns that we've had with any North Korean actor is um, are they are they going to carry out some sort of disruptive and destructive attack. And uh, that's one of the tools that we came across with regards to this actor. They do have a destructive tool that could be used in a wiper-type attack. It's a fairly simplistic attack. Um, and, and it's it called operates, Are You Happy? That's the name of the tool. And uh, it, it's a fairly simplistic attack, but it can have a lot, of, a pretty strong effect on a on an organization if they can wipe, uh, you know, wipe important systems simultaneously. And that's happened on several occasions already. A lot of that is that the Russians, uh, Russian actors have done that quite recently with a, with a ransomware attack and that actually caused billions of dollars in damages to the economy. So it's a very real concern. So, John, just real quick here, uh, which organization in the U.S. is most vulnerable at this point? Well, it's uh, because they because a lot of their it's uh, the incidents uh, focus on critical infrastructure. Uh, this rec- that re- that recognize that represents often the the biggest opportunity. Uh, we anticipate that any sort of major disruptive or destructive attack would focus on an area like that. And there's been a lot of uh, other incidents um, that have that have played out like that. Uh, it's important to also remember that uh, critical infrastructure is not just utilities. I think there's a lot people often focus on utilities, but um, uh, logistics and finance. Uh, we got to leave it there, but I want to thank you, John Holtquist, Director of Intelligence Analysis for FireEye, talking about cyber attacks. Everybody wants it. But now Apple wants to get it even more directly. Jack Farchi is the senior energy and commodities reporter for Bloomberg. He's based in London. Jack, tell us the story about Apple and why does it want its own direct supply of cobalt? Yes, we've had this uh, amazing shift in the cobalt market really in a matter of a little over a year where the change in expectations for electric vehicles, you've seen 
almost every major automaker come out with uh, with forecasts for how many electric vehicles they're going to build in the next few years. Uh, Glencore, who reported results today, had a nice little tot up. They said it's going to be n- there's 90 billion dollars of investments announced by the auto industry in electric vehicles. And that's had a huge impact on the cobalt market because cobalt is an essential commodity in the in most lithium ion batteries, which are used in electric vehicles. Where cobalt also used is in lithium ion batteries in gadgets like smartphones and tablets and, and laptops. Uh, until now, in fact, still now, uh, Apple is probably one of the largest uh, end users of cobalt in the world. Apple gadgets, along with things companies like Samsung, uh, are some of the largest users of cobalt. Um, as these uh, car companies uh, are beginning to come out with huge forecasts for uh, how many electric vehicles they're going to build over the next five or ten years, they are going out into the market, people like VW, BMW, uh, going into the market and seeking to sign uh, big long-term deals to buy up supplies of cobalt to ensure they're going to have enough cobalt to build all the electric vehicles they want to. Uh, And now we're seeing Apple doing the same thing, essentially looking at what's happening uh, in the in the car market and what some of the car companies are doing, and in, yeah. in our in our understanding, wanting to make sure that they are going to have enough cobalt to uh, to build to carry on building iPhones and iPads into the future. All right. So, who does Apple currently buy cobalt from? And basically, who's going to be losing business as Apple cuts out the middleman and goes direct to the miners? It's not so much a question of Apple losing business. Uh, at the moment, Apple would go and buy batteries from battery producers who in turn are buying uh, components of batteries from people who produce those, who in turn are buying the raw materials in a in a supply chain that goes down the chain. So at the end of the day, Apple is not going to, we don't yep. think, uh, immediately start building batteries of it, it, itself. They're just, right. It's, it's a question of securing the supply of cobalt for their supply chain, for the companies in their supply chain. Now, uh, cobalt is uh, a byproduct of mining for copper and nickel primarily. That's right. Where does it come from? Well, that's one of the main problems. Uh, The vast majority of it, about 60%, two-thirds, and that's a number that's set to grow, comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, which is not the most... uh, Even if it were the most stable country in the world, that would be a pretty significant concentration risk for any commodity. Um, uh, But... Uh, Democratic Republic of Congo is not the most stable country in the world. Uh, they've just announced a big uh, planned uh, increase in taxes on on miners, uh, and so that's a big concern. So I'm looking at cobalt prices, and uh, they have skyrocketed in the past few years. I mean, just to give you a sense, uh, from the end of 2016, they've more than doubled. Uh, And I'm just wondering, is the actual demand going to keep up with the perceived demand that uh, is driving prices now? I mean, in other words, is Apple going to lock in prices that are much higher than what you might be able to get later on? That's a very good question. I think from what we have heard about the discussions that are going on in the market, uh, it's not so much a question of locking in prices as locking in supply. So probably the deals that are done, uh, not just talking about Apple here, but VW, BMW, the big car companies, some of the battery makers like Samsung SDI are also uh, saying that they're seeking long-term cobalt deals. They're probably going to have a floating price. So it'll be whatever the market price is. It's more a question of, of locking in supply. Uh, whether the price stays at this very high level uh, is another question. If the shortage that some people are looking at and fearing for the future does materialize, then you'd have to say that prices would go higher. But that's yeah. several years down the line. I'm surprised that they're not locking in a price for a long-term contract. 
it's very hard to lock in a price uh, in, in in the cobalt market where it's going it's gone through this kind of um, real uh, complete paradigm shift because of electric vehicles. So yeah. the price has tripled, as you said, in the past eighteen months. Who knows what the right price is? Yeah, it's it's very it's very hard to say. You know, you you take five different forecasts for what electric vehicle uh, production uh and uh and and sales are going to be in 2025 or 2030 uh and they're wildly different yeah. Uh, yeah. so who can tell you what the correct price for cobalt in right. five or ten years time nobody can jack farchi thank you so much for joining us jack farchi senior energy and commodities reporter for bloomberg news coming to us from our london bureau you can find his story on the website bloomberg.com or uh, the terminal itself Yes, let's talk about housing. U.S. existing home sales in the month of January falling a little bit more than 3%. Here to help us understand what's going on is Brad Hunter. He is the chief economist of Home Advisor. They're based in West Palm Beach, Florida. He can be followed on Twitter at Bradley Hunter. All right, at Bradley Hunter. What, uh, what's your view of the, of the housing market and this uh, decline that we saw and the run rate of about 5.4 million units? Morning, Pam. Well, yeah, I think that uh, clearly the uh, housing number was lower than expected. And I think there are three different things at play. Number one is the inventory. uh, And that's what everybody's talking about right now. 3.4 months of supply of unsold inventory. And secondly, um, in January, mortgage rates were starting to edge up. And of course, they've gone up uh, a lot more since then. And I think they will go up a lot more going forward. And the third factor is that prices were up also in this reading. And uh, I think that the rate of home price appreciation is going to slow. So, Brad, uh, Home Advisor helps homeowners figure out how to renovate their homes in an effective manner, correct? Yeah, we connect. We're the marketplace that connects homeowners with the pros that they need to get their projects done. So just can you give me a sense of what you're seeing from that perspective and what it tells you about the sort of mental state of homeowners? In other words, are they mm-hmm. looking to invest in their homes and expand them because they don't want to move out? Or are they investing in their homes in order to sell them at a higher price? Can you get a sense of that? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, we just talked about the low inventory situation, and it's actually part of a vicious cycle. Um, low supply of homes for sale causes people to stay frustrated and um, have trouble getting the home that they want. So some of them say, you know, I'm just going to stay put and remodel the house that I have. A lot more people are looking to move because they're tired of their current home, according to research from NAR, than people who are moving for a job uh, that's in a different area or what have you. So that further reduces inventory because people stay put, and then the cycle just lather, rinse, repeat, right? Um, the other thing that I'm noticing is a trend that I'm, that I'm calling nesting is investing. There's all this stock market volatility, and I think it's going to drive some people to say, you know what, instead of staying fully invested in the stock market, I'll pull some of my chips off the table and maybe go ahead and reinvest in my home and you know expand or improve the property and you know that's a a pretty safe investment in terms of uh, any risk on the downside Brad you note that the size of uh, home improvement or renovation projects is increasing expand on that 
Sure. We're seeing more what we call major renovation projects. Our year-end survey actually showed that uh, most home improvement companies and professionals saw an increase in the size of their average job, whereas only 5.8% reported a decrease in the average size of the job. So people are taking on projects that they had deferred years ago. Uh, Now that the economy is stronger and, more importantly, their equity in their home is much higher, they're saying, okay, you know what, it's time to do that kitchen update that I've been wanting to do, or it's time to turn that basement into a man cave or into a rental unit or redo the garage or the tile or whatever it is that they've been wanting. So they're taking on more discretionary projects, more of what I call lifestyle projects. I'm wondering, uh, Brad, which parts of the country are seeing the fastest rates of spending on home improvement? For the past few years, it was the markets that were seeing the greatest increases in uh, home prices and uh, therefore homeowner equity. So San Francisco, San Diego, New York, Miami, Seattle, Portland. And now it's starting to shift. Those markets are starting to um, kind of slow down because they've had these very, very rapid increases and it's starting to slow down. And so now that some of the interior markets and second tier markets are starting to take off in a big way. So Milwaukee, Columbus, uh, Tampa, markets like that are starting to see um, very strong growth. And yeah. uh, I've been working with the Harvard Joint Center on housing studies, and they uh, are predicting strong growth in those kinds of markets, and and, uh, I'm going to continue to watch those with them. So, Brad, does that imply to you that prices in the big cities that you mentioned are going to stagnate while they continue to accelerate uh, in the more central parts of the country? Right. So I think what we're going to see is um, these Continued increases in homeowner equity. We've seen already a doubling in equity in the country in the past five years. That's huge. And so the markets that have already experienced a big boom are going to just taper down, but the, the, uh, the rest of the country is now just playing catch up. And just quickly, Brad, any, ch- any change in where people are going to be buying homes because of changes in tax laws and uh, the deductibility of interest payments? I actually don't think that the tax law change is going to have a huge impact on the aggregate home sales numbers. It could shift the mix geographically or even um, across the different strata. For example, luxury home buying, the luxury home buying population, if you will, will start to enjoy higher after-tax income, which will help home buying and remodeling at the high end and in the expensive markets. And the rest of the housing market won't be affected very much either way, in my opinion. Brad Hunter, thank you so much for joining us. Brad Hunter, Chief Economist for Home Advisor, which is based in West Palm Beach. Uh, We will continue tracking the uh, housing data that we just received, as well as the auctions later today of U. Treasuries. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.